Um, if you'll get out your Bibles, you want to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. This is a, a story that's been told a long time. People know the story of David and Goliath. But we're continuing our series today on emotionally healthy spirituality. And in this particular section, we're just starting to dip our toe. If you'll remember, a couple weeks ago, John kind of introduced the idea of being emotionally healthy and, and how that pertains to our walk with God. And a couple weeks ago, he talked about Saul and gave us a picture of how Saul was so drastically terrible, um, both in managing his emotions and in his spiritual life. And really, these two things are connected in our lives more than we realize. Um, and actually, if you'll go to the, the second PowerPoint... It'd be, you don't have PowerPoints? Oh, okay. All right, moving right along. So it basically, the PowerPoint just introduces the other topics that we'll be talking about. So today, again, we're going to be talking about David. And the reason we're talking about David is because he's a perfect picture of an emotionally healthy person who not only knows himself, but knows God. And he's able to cut through some obstacles and defeat Goliath because of it. Now, normally we see this epic battle, and it's like good versus evil, it's a, it's a size battle, but it's more than that. And we, we'll see that as we get into this story here. Um, basically, awareness of yourself is important in your relationship with the Lord, because the more you know yourself, the more you will know God, because you will be opening yourself up to God. In other words... You're not hiding anything. You're not holding back. You're giving God all of you. Now, unfortunately, we, especially as Americans, have a habit of not giving people all of ourselves. We hide behind masks. We, we like to appear like we have it all together, that everything in life is going swimmingly, and, um, and it's usually not. We, you know, we like to put our best foot forward. Think of an interview your job interview. You don't only don't show up to a job interview with holes in your jeans and a ratted up t-shirt and your hair just like you rolled out of bed and show up for the interview and expect to get the job, right? Most of us don't. If you do, that's probably why you haven't been getting a job. <laughs> See me afterwards. We'll counsel. Um, but we've been taught that, right? Put your best foot forward. Put up a good front. Put up a good face, right? And when we do that, we go through our lives like that, but something is missing. A lot of times people are putting up that good front, but inside they are dying. There's an old song, and I don't know, I, just, I was thinking about this this morning. Um, how many of you know Twyla Paris? Okay, a handful of you. Twyla Paris came out with a song... Um, I think it was a late 80s, early 90s, called The Warrior is a Child. And she talks about just being this, this on-fire Christian who's out there doing the battle over and over and over again. She's winning battles left and right. But then when she comes home, she lays down her armor and she cries. Because that's how she's really feeling inside. 
And oftentimes when we're up against battles, when we're up against things in our life that are difficult or hard, we as Christians have been taught, and there's been people out there preaching that, that you need to smile, that you need to just say the promises of God and everything will be all right and it will all come together for you. Well, folks, that's not, that's not healthy. Yes, God's word is a living, active word. It is a two-edged sword that divides between marrow and bone. It, it is alive. It does work. All right? But just simply saying a verse over your life isn't enough. You have to live that life. And oftentimes, if you think of a drawer, how many of you have a junk drawer at home? You have guests coming over, and you start taking everything off the counter, and you shove it in the drawer, and you're trying to get it closed. Most of the time, we can get it closed, right? Well, think of your emotions in that drawer. Eventually, you're not going to be able to close that drawer. And everything comes spilling out. You can't close that drawer anymore. And what happens is those parts of your life that you have stuff are coming out, and they're going to spill out, and everybody's going to see it. And you can't hide it anymore. So the thing is, a lot of us didn't just naturally get this way. It dates back to Genesis, actually, when you have the fall of Adam and Eve. You see, when Adam and Eve, back in Genesis 3, were created, they shared all of themselves with each other. They shared all of themselves with God. They were revealed in all their glory. And I'm not just talking in a physical sense, but in an emotional, deep, connected level that allowed them the freedom to be who they really were. They were authentic. Now, the word authentic gets banded about quite a bit in Christian circles, but there was nothing to hide. They had no reason to hide. They could love each other. They could talk to each other. They were in relationship with each other. And when we talk about knowing and being in relationship, it's not just a matter of knowing facts about somebody. Oh, their hair is brown. Their eyes are blue. She likes walks in the park. No. It's a deep, connected knowing of intimacy that we're talking about here. But see, when sin comes in, it breaks apart that relational activity. It breaks apart the knowing. Because what happens is you no longer want to be known. You want to hide. Because you're afraid of what the other person's going to think. You're afraid of the results and the consequences of your actions or your thoughts. If they really knew what I was thinking, you know, I wouldn't be invited. If they really knew that I did this and I did that, then, you know, they wouldn't want me around. So as early as Adam and Eve, and when sin enters in, they're hiding and they're covering themselves up. They use fig leaves. So already sin has done its damage and pulled us apart from really knowing one another, knowing God, but also knowing ourselves. So this is kind of where we jump in. We're just going to kind of dip our toe in the water, if you speak, because there's so much to this. Uh, do we, any PowerPoints at all? None? Okay. No problem. Well, when I talk about false self, they have a list of 15 different symptoms of 
having a false self. And I'll just kind of read them out since we don't have the PowerPoint for you. These are symptoms. So if you're doing one of these things, this is probably, you can guess. I say yes when I really mean no. I get depressed when people are upset with me. I have a need to be approved by others to feel good about myself. I act nice on the outside, but on the inside, I can't stand you. I believe that if I make mistakes, I myself am a failure. I criticize others in order to feel better about myself. I avoid looking weak or foolish when I don't have the answer. I have to be doing something exceptional to feel alive. Number 10, I have to be needed to feel alive. I am fearful and can't take risks. I do what others want so they don't get mad at me. I use knowledge and competence to cover my feelings of inadequacy. I want my children to behave well so others, others will think I'm a good parent. Now, I don't think 14 counts, really. <laughs> you know, as a mom of four boys, I would rather they be good for other people than for me, just saying. <laughs> At least people know I tried, right? And number 15, I compare myself a lot to other people. Now, the truth be told, we probably all move at some point in one of those 15 or a couple of those 15. The other thing that's, I think, true about these 15 is that sometimes we can mature and grow out of doing one of these symptoms, and when another issue or another Goliath presents itself, then we have another issue here that we operate out of. But let's go into David here, and just to kind of give you some context. So Saul and his army are in this great valley. Saul, as king, has been battling the Philistines for quite some time now, and for the most part, he's had general success in defeating them. So the Philistines take up a new type of warfare, if you speak, and instead of just going after them with their whole army, they bring up this giant who's nine feet tall, and challenges the army of Israel with just this one man, basically saying, well, if you can defeat me, meaning Goliath, and you have somebody that will defeat me, then we will be subject to you, and vice versa. So it was a new way of doing warfare because what they'd been doing hadn't been working so well. Now, mind you, Goliath is nine feet tall. His armor alone is 125 pounds. His spearhead is 15 pounds, so, and he has an armor bearer that goes in front of him as a big rectangular shield. So you can imagine this is one massive guy, right? Now, just to kind of give you also some more context, Saul is by no means a kind of puny guy. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin, and he's actually heads and shoulders, as it mentions in, um, earlier in a couple chapters in Samuel before 17, that he is heads and shoulders above the other men in his tribe. So Saul is king here, and as John talked about a couple weeks ago, it kind of shows where Saul is weak here, both emotionally and spiritually, and how David rises to the occasion. So we're going to read here in um, chapter 17 of 1 Samuel. Does anybody have that page number in the regular Bible? 199, okay? So you want to go to 199. Now, I don't want to read because it's rather lengthy 
the whole issue here. But again, we have the two armies. They're encamped. Oh, wonderful. Great. Uh, can you go to PowerPoint number seven? I think that's where we're at. Great. Okay, so a little bit of more background. So we have the two armies. They're facing one another. Goliath has been shouting out challenges to the Israeli army. Why can't anybody defeat me? Come out. He has been doing this for 40 days, morning and night. So 80 times in a row, Goliath stands up and challenges the Israeli army. Saul and his men are terrified. They do nothing, nothing for 40 days. Now, David is on the scene. I'm sorry, I'm still ringing. Um, David is on the scene because he's a shepherd. He's been shepherding the sheep. He's also been in Saul's court previously playing the harp. If you recall earlier, Saul, um, the spirit of Yahweh leaves Saul because he is grieved over Saul's behavior, basically, and disobedience. And so Saul has these episodes where he's basically manic and the music soothes King Saul. Well, David is the one that's been in his court playing the harp, mind you. So David's kind of going from the court to the sheep, his father's sheep, and tending to the sheep. Meanwhile, this army, this uh, war is starting to go on and on. It's 40 days now. And David's dad sends David up to the, the front lines, if you will, to bring supplies to his brothers. So David does so. And when he comes up, he hears all of a sudden Goliath come out on his daily trek that he did and come up to the front lines to shout his obscenities, if you will, uh, at the army. And so this is where we read. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now right, right away you can hear just in through that passage how David's anger is kind of rising up. David's shock that this is happening even. Like, what's, what's going on? What, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? I mean, David has this real sense of connection with God and, and connection, like patriotism, if you will, for his, his God and country and man. And he's standing there like, who is this guy, right? Who does he think he is? And he, he basically is asking the men around him. And... They explain to him what's going on, and David can't understand why nobody's doing anything about it. Can you go to uh, the next slide? Okay. So, in David's defeat, basically, of Goliath that we'll go through, David has some very real obstacles. It's not just Goliath, this giant, this foe that is an obstacle. He is one of the obstacles. But this kind of will show you as we go through the story the things that David had to cut through in order to be the winner, in order to be the victor. And how he does this is by knowing himself, who he is, who his gifts are, and in doing so, he knows his God. And you're like, well, why is that important? It's important because that's how he wins. 
He knew that the army of the living God was with him and that nobody could defeat him, okay? But these forces, these obstacles work hard to try and tear him down before he can even do a single thing. And these, are very, these same obstacles are very real in our own lives. And as you'll see, they create layers of false self in us. And so it kind of shows you how that comes about. You know, because we're broken. And um, so anyway, we're going to go through first. And if you look in verse 28 of chapter 17. So now David's probably 17 to 18 years old. He has three older brothers that are here in the army. Remember, he takes the supplies to his brothers. He's already asked what's going on. And his oldest brother, Eliab, hears him. Now, Eliab's probably 10 to 15 years older than David. It says in verse 28, when Eliad, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you lead those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. This is David's reply. Now what have I done, said David? Can I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. So the first obstacle that David encounters is his family. Now, no surprise there, but when we grow up, the first people we encounter is our parents, right? And much to our surprise, as we know as adults, our parents are broken too. So a lot of the things that we get growing up are not only taught, but caught. David's family represents our family, essentially. He is misunderstood. He's accused. He's slandered. He's ignored. You know, his brother's basic... The basic message to David here at this point is that you're nobody. You're useless. Why are you here? You're here because your intentions aren't good. I know what you're all about. And sometimes the people that are closest to us, that know our faults and that sort of thing, are the first ones to accuse us, the first ones to put us down. Even Jesus' own family didn't understand what Jesus was doing at the time. And so our families, even the best of our families, you know, they add to these layers of false self. They kind of smother our true selves, if you will. And our culture is that way, too. You know, if you talk to a lot of people and they think about when they were growing up, a lot of people will say, you know, I felt invisible when I was growing up. I was told not to be seen, not to be heard. You know, don't think certain thoughts. You ever have your parents say, don't question what I'm asking you to do, just do it. You're not supposed to feel certain feelings. You need to stop acting that way. Grow up. Get over it. You're not supposed to make certain mistakes. Oh, don't do that because you know you'll mess it up anyway. Don't be weak. Don't be vulnerable. My dad used to say, oh, quit crying or I'll give you something to cry about. He meant it. (laughs) But families are like that. They project onto us their own brokenness, and we learn how to 
survive, basically. We stuff, like I said earlier, those emotions in order to survive, in order to feel accepted by them. And then and only then, after we do that, we start living the life that they want us to. And we're not living the life that we really wanted to. It's kind of like having your family own a family business and they expect you to take on that business that the inside of you is going, you know, I want to be an artist, not a teacher. I want to be a singer, not this or that. Parts of ourselves that we try to fix end up being crutches to us. And we use them to get through other parts, other hurdles of our life. So we bury ourselves, and that's how these false selves, the first layer starts. It starts with our parents. So we have this outward appearance, and on the surface, everything seems fine, but we know we feel like that label. You're stupid. You're dumb. (laughs) You're weak. You can't make decisions, and on it goes. Or you're invisible, and you, and you really try to be noticed, but the only way you can be noticed is to act like they want you to act or say what they want you to say. So that's just the first obstacle. That's just the first layer of how a false self is constructed. The second one is significant others with authority and experience. So here David is. Saul has brought David in. He hears that this young man is, is all indignant about what's going on, and, and he hears uh, David's interest. So Saul has David brought before him. So we go to verse 32. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go out and fight him. Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy, and he's been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he's defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Now wait a minute. Saul is king, right? Saul is someone who has experienced success defeating the Philistines. And yet he's willing to go and send this teenage boy, let's say he's 17, 18 years old, young man, out to face this giant alone. But this is the obstacle here. So what happens is Saul decides that, you know, I'm going to send you out, but, you know, I think he's feeling a little guilty here. Why don't you put on my armor? Saul's giving him advice. You know, he's commanded 330,000 men. He, he knows battle well. He knows what it takes to defeat somebody. So, here, David, put on my armor. Now, as you can imagine, because it, it does say that Saul was bigger, um, a bigger man, heads and shoulders above his tribes, that Saul's putting, or I'm sorry, David's putting on his armor, and it probably is, you know, too long, too big, too cumbersome. And David's probably like, <laughs> this is a working bell, you know? 
And David's probably starting to think to himself, you know, when I killed the lion and when I killed the bear, I didn't have any armor on me, but I had God. And he's thinking about the advice that Saul is giving him. You know, he, he realizes, you know, that this might be good advice, but this fits you, not me. He has enough wherewithal to think and to have common sense to realize that, you know, what works for you, what method, what skill, what gift that you have doesn't necessarily fit me. And you see, it would have been stupid, I think, for David to go out in this armor and try to defeat Goliath with a sword. First of all, he can't barely walk, probably, in this armor. Second of all, his range of motion is probably pretty much nil. And third of all, he's not a swordsman. That is not his gifting. That is not what he knows how to do. But David knows who he is. He knows what David, what God has gifted him with. He knows what is in his hand and how to use it. And so instead of throwing away his gifting and going at the advice of somebody that's more experienced, somebody with authority, he says, I can do this. I can do this without doing your method. I can do this without using your tools, your armor. Now, mind you, David admired Saul. David still honored the fact that Saul was king. But it was more important for David to act upon his own heart in knowing himself and following through with what he knew to do. In other words, he listened to his heart and he knew that God was with him. So then we get to the third obstacle, Goliath. Now, again, I talked about size and how big Goliath is and we know that David's a young man, but this, this battle just isn't just a size battle. Um, you know, when you come up with an obstacle, specifically somebody that's antagonizing you, I mean, Goliath was offended when David comes up. You're a boy. Are you kidding me? This is what Israel has as a boy? You're going to come after me with that? Really? And so he starts degrading David on a personal level then. We've all come across people, you know, in our walks that have difficulties and that start attacking us personally when the issue isn't about us at all. And that's an obstacle because how do we respond to that? How we relate to others is a clear reflection of how our emotions are on the inside. And it also is a clear indicating, or indicator, if you will, of where you are. Are you wearing a mask or not? Because if someone's shouting obscenities at you, if someone's angering you, are you just keeping quiet to keep the peace and moving on? It's one of the f- symptoms of false self, Right? But not every situation calls for peace. It causes, causes us sometimes to rise up and be who God created us to be with him standing with us. And that was the case here. So David takes off this armor and says, I'm going to do it this way. Can you go to the, uh, the ninth PowerPoint, please? So David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, 
choose five smooth, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. David is going in his authentic self. He's unencumbered by somebody else's method. He's unencumbered by the fact that his family thinks he's a nobody and can't do anything. He's going with the Holy Spirit inside of him. The Holy Spirit who is our counselor, who is our leader, who is our guide. So his guidance comes from the inside. And David is going to use his skill. His skill is the slingshot. Again, it would have made no sense for him to go after Goliath with the sword, who is a skilled um, man in battle from his youth. It makes sense for David to use what he killed the lion with, what he killed the bear with, what he's had success for, what he knows God has gifted him with, and what's in his hand. David's not dependent on doing it the right way to be accepted or loved. If he was doing that, he would have just gone back home. David is not doing it out of guilt for the nation of Israel. He doesn't owe them anything. He's patriotic, but it's not his battle to fight. David's certainly not doing it to keep the peace. He's not doing it to just sacrifice himself. David is not saying, this is my chance to make an impact on history, and I find I've got to achieve something instead of doing my stupid job with the sheep. I'll make a name for myself. That's not what his thought process is. He's going, how do I do this in a way that fits me? He's using his skills. When I talked about size, what David has against Goliath is differentiation. In the book uh, that we're reading, um, Emotional Health was for um, Healthy Spirituality, uh, Peter Scazzaro says that differentiation is a person's capacity to define his or own life goals and values apart from the pressures of life. In other words, the degree to which you are able to affirm your different values and your goals apart from the pressures around you separate you, even while you remain with those people. David had goals. David had values. He had morals in himself. He had an internal knowing clock of himself of where he would draw the line and where he needed to go and take the risk to cross it, to become and be true to himself. To not be true to himself, to be the false self, would have been to go home because his brothers told him to. Or to give up because Saul said he couldn't because he was just a boy. Or to use somebody else's method and skill to try a win, a winless situation. He uses his authentic self, knowing I have this skill, I have this gift, I have the living God inside of me who is with me, who is for me. And that's what he goes out with. You know, in the long run, when we are not true to ourselves, we hurt others. But when we are true to ourselves, others will follow. It's like breaking ground. As soon as David takes that slingshot and kills Goliath, and the armies see that the Goliath is down, the armies seize and defeat the Philistine. The Israelis move them back further than they were originally and defeat and win the war. But it wasn't until 
Goliath was defeated. It wasn't until David stepped out and took a risk to use his gift and to go with God before others would follow. Can you go to slide 10 for me? So we're kind of winding down and we've talked about this false self and you can see now how false self develops, right? It develops kind of through these obstacles of our family and people giving us advice. They may mean well, but that advice doesn't necessarily fit us. And then there are the foes that are, that are derogatory, that are just outright to, to stop us at no matter the cost. They, they threaten with consequences, if you will, of our actions. You know, there's a risk to change. I don't know about you, but I don't want to live in my false self any longer than I have to. But it requires change. And through our series, these are some steps, some practical steps that we can take to start to make that transition from operating under our false self to living our authentic self out. So the first one is to pay attention to your interior silence and solitude. Now, when David was a shepherd, he spent lots of time in silence and solitude. This can be a hard part for people because, you know, with today's culture and people on their phones constantly and the TV, like when my kids do homework, they've got their phone going in one hand, the TV blaring in the other, and their computer with their work. I don't know how they do it. It's distracting. But silence and solitude requires that we kind of empty ourselves before the Lord. We empty ourselves of these distractions. Now what I like to do is I spend a few minutes and we're talking about knowing ourselves. I start thinking about my day. I start thinking about how I felt during the day. Like, man, that person ticked me off. That guy cut me off, you know, or he almost, he was tailgating me, get off my bumper, I almost did a brake check on him. You know, the, the, the things that wear you out. So I take a minute before God, before I can get silent, and I'm just, I just like let it out. All right, God, you know, I, I had a kind of crappy attitude today, you know. So-and-so was snotty to me, and I gave it right back. Yeah, I probably shouldn't have done that, Lord. You know, I just kind of let that day filter. And then when I've let all of that filter, then I let the silence come. Because the truth of the matter is God is a big enough God to take on our anger, our hurt, our frustrations. God loves us no matter what. That's the truth. And sometimes I will journal those emotions or feelings, too. That's a good way if, if you're not... If you need a way to focus, that's a good way to focus in. But then I let God just talk. And sometimes that first minute or two, it seems rough because you're, you're, just, you're just, the thoughts are going, just give it a minute. Take a deep breath. We'll actually practice this here in just a little bit. The second is find trusted companions. Now, it says companions, but the truth is you probably only have one or two. It's good to um, have a group but when you are being real, you're in a very vulnerable position. And it's very important that you're around safe people. And most of you know what I mean by safe people. You know that if anything you say to this person will not be said out of the confines of your relationship with them. 
They're not going to go and run and tell their husband or their kid or their friend or, you know what Sally said? None of that. You're safe. The, la- uh, the third one, I'm sorry, is moving out of your comfort zone. You know, when you start to move out of your comfort zone, expect resistance. Expect opposition. It's not easy to change, and it's real easy to get fearful and want to pull right back into where you've been operating out of. You know, sometimes, some of these things, like I said, they're crutches. They become habits. They become our natural leaning, if you will, of how to operate and how to relate to people. This is transition. So expect people to notice when you start acting differently. Some of these things that we're going up against, remember, they started with your family. They're multi-generational. So it doesn't happen overnight. It's a process. Next, we want to pray for courage. It takes courage to take a risk. It takes courage to take a change. It takes courage to recognize in the first place, kind of like a 12-step program. It takes courage to recognize that you have a problem, that there is something in your life that actually needs changed. You know, we're all broken people. We all grew up with broken people all around us. Again, some of this is not just taught, but it's caught. But we can change. We can change as a group. We can change as a church. We can change the culture and live out our authentic self. And we can do so by having one another challenge each other and encourage each other in this. We're meant to exercise our courage like David did. We are meant to live out of our authentic selves because God has a plan for each one of you. God has something special that he's given each one of you and his desire, his will, is that you live that out to the fullest. God does not hold back on us. We hold back. It is us. He is willing and wanting to give us every gift, every special blessing, and experience victory in our lives. It doesn't mean we don't have sadness. It doesn't mean we don't have obstacles and real hurdles to cross. But how we respond to them says a lot. It shows us where we truly are. If you have your Bibles, and if you do, I'd like you to turn to Psalm 23.3. Can we go to slide 15, please? I'm going to do this little exercise with you to kind of help you. If you haven't ever done the silence and solitude part, this kind of goes in peace with that. They take a piece of scripture, and um, I don't know if you're familiar with Lecto Divino. But in a way, we're kind of going to practice a Lecto Divino, and it kind of what it does is it takes a piece of scripture, and you read it for the first time. You just kind of listen to the words. Then you read it a second time, and you see what is highlighted. You read it for the third time and you're asking the Lord, wow, Lord, is this what you mean? You know, you could read a piece of scripture over a hundred times and never catch anything. But if you take one piece and, and kind of mull it over, kind of ponder it, that's when things open up and that's when the spirit comes alive in the, in the word of God and touches you. So I want to kind of do this little exercise. We'll do this, and then we'll um, actually, um, I'll have John come up here, and we'll do communion.
Um, I want to have an opportunity for prayer ministry because this is some strong stuff. You know, when you're dealing with labels and projections and, and false assumptions about your own life that you've been living under, that's a big wake-up call for some people. And like I said, it takes courage to step out and say, you know what? Yeah, I need to change that. I don't want to be that way. I want people to know me, and I want to know God. The extent that I know myself is going to be the extent that you know God, because if you're only going to go surface deep, that's all you're ever going to be with the Lord. It's a surface deep relationship. You know, these things are like weeds. We can cut the weed off at the top, and the lawn looks nice and pretty, but the fact is that weed will come back if you don't take care of it and get to the root. And so that's what prayer ministry is designed to do, is just to help you take that first step. So 